0: Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast. I am incredibly excited to have Christy Knickerbacher on the show today. She is a speech language pathologist and singing, singing voice specialist in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, she re- rehabilitates voice and swallowing at her private practice, A Tempo Voice Center, and she also lectures on voice science nationally. So she is an SLP rock star, and I've been waiting patiently or maybe a little impatiently to get to talk to her about all things voice because she is such an amazing resource Um, and I'm really excited to kind of get a peek at what she does today, Um, but she will also share some like tips and suggestions for those of us who are working in the schools and trying to figure out what we're doing with these students. Um, So without further ado, hello, hello, Christy. Hi, Marisha. How are you? Awesome. Super excited to get to learn a little bit about you today and all things voice. Um, and I'm super curious, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Like, how did you get started with voice therapy? And um, like we we know that you have a private practice, and I'm curious kind of what that looks like for you today.
1: So that's a really great question um, and kind of an interesting story. Uh, when I was in high school and kind of growing up, I've always been a singer. So I enjoy singing, I'm very musical, I enjoy writing, um, I enjoy playing instruments. Uh, and I sat down on the back porch with my parents kind of in high school when you kind of decide what are you going to do? Are you going to go to college? And, uh, I told them I really, really, really wanted to do music. Uh, So I had auditioned for a music scholarship to go to uh, Texas Christian University for a vocal performance degree. And I got the scholarship. And so we had all kind of decided as a family that I was going to do that. So that same senior year, I was prepping for a competition where I had to sing a song, an art song. By myself, and something was going on with my voice. And it was nothing I could control. It was the weirdest thing. And I just knew the sound wasn't coming out right. It wasn't coming out correctly. And I discovered that if I pushed on my throat kind of to the side, uh, it didn't make that weird noise. So I went to the competition and sang and performed pushing on the side of my throat. And the judge looked at me and Asked, you know, why are you, why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? And I said, well, my voice sounds really weird. Um, and so she asked me a couple questions and basically said what I was afraid she was going to say, which was, uh, you probably need to go see an ear, nose, throat doctor. So that was the push I needed uh, to go get looked at. And there was a bump on my vocal cord and I was devastated, you know, then worried about next steps right away. I was told I needed to, go see a voice therapist just a speech therapist is what they called it at the time and I was so concerned that this speech therapist wouldn't know anything about music wouldn't know nothing about singing and I went and I met her I was pleasantly surprised she was a singer as well she knew lots about music and knew exactly where I was coming from and that was really comforting um, because it was a really scary time but I ended up having surgery and had the bump removed and I was then in rehabilitation, so I had more voice therapy, and then went and continued on in college, uh, kind of like an injured athlete where I wasn't really singing very difficult songs, uh, trying to take care of things as I healed. And uh, my voice teacher kind of had a a meeting with me and said, you know, you need to probably think about a different career path, because there's no way you're going to graduate on time with this injury. And... So I was, again, devastated, um, but then got to thinking, well, what can I do? Um, I'd considered doing um, nurse practitioner or physician at some point during that backyard conversation with my parents. And I said, well, what about doing the speech pathology, doing what my speech pathologist had done for me, being that person that knows about singing, music, voice, um, and then being able to... Kind of marry that love of healthcare, person, patient care, uh, with music at the same time. So fast forward to graduating graduate school. Uh, I had taken a semester kind of extra class on entrepreneur uh, mindset and things you might need to be thinking about if you ever wanted to start a private practice. And I thought that was really neat. Um, I was kind of scared of it though at the same time, and I decided that I would incorporate after I got my license so I my husband helped me uh, we chose the name A Tempo Voice Center because A Tempo is a musical term and it means that you deviate you have like a, a rhythm uh the beat of a song right you, you start off with that certain timing and that certain rhythm you may deviate from that throughout the song to a slower part or a faster part, but then the musical notation, it's kind of like the map, it tells you a tempo, which means go back to the tempo that you started with. And so just like I try and do for my voice patients and what I knew kind of with my vision to help them get back to that baseline, uh, I wanted it to be named something healing, something that they could identify with. So, um, it's not the best name when you're trying to talk to insurance companies (laughs) because, um, they don't know, they expect an H after it, but, um, yeah, it's been an interesting, uh, journey to, to do that. Um, and it kind of just found me and then I found it and it kind of has become me now. So.
0: Oh, I love that. That is so cool. Um, and very unfortunate that, all of those things happen, but I feel like sometimes things happen for a reason. And now you get to help all of these other um, like singers and musicians uh, kind of find their way back to, which is really cool.
1: It's the best feeling. It really is to, to be able to work with someone who, you know, exactly how scared they are for one. Mm -hmm. Um, They're coming to you, not not because it's me. It's like, Oh, I'm coming to voice therapy. They're freaking out inside. They think that things are over for them and to give them answers, to get them goals, to help them get back to what they were doing is the best feeling.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. So cool. And you like, you've lived it. So you, you're probably, I I know you're amazing when it comes to like, I don't know, just being there for them and knowing what to say and how to support and all that. So That's amazing. Yeah. Um, Okay. So now let's dive into some of the nitty gritty (laughs) voice therapy stuff. Um, So the first thing that we decided to talk about was the difference between behavioral and physiological voice therapy. Um, So can you tell us a little about that?
1: Yeah. So when you think about voice therapy, maybe... If you're listening to this, uh, you had a little bit of a class, part of a class, maybe half a semester. Maybe you got a whole semester. Maybe you got more than that in school. Maybe you even got an extern term placement uh, where voice patients were being seen. Um, But it was always something that I was confused about. And it was usually the way it was presented in class. So voice therapy kind of was this, thing in the corner that nobody wanted to touch, nobody wanted to look at, but I was super excited about it because I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, but for everybody else, it was very visible to me that it was challenging. It was either they didn't know enough about it. Um, so they just didn't care. They said somebody else can do that. Um, but I got to thinking maybe it's just because the information is presented in a confusing way. Um, so I want to talk about this because I think it's important to help you piece together what these differences are so that you know the types of voice therapy that you might need to give to very specific patients. Cause not all voice therapy approaches aren't created equal. Um, and sometimes patients need more of those types than others. Sometimes they just need one approach. Um, So I wanted to dive into talking about the differences between that um, so you understand it better. Um, So the most common, I think, behavioral uh, voice therapy technique is resonant voice therapy. Um, So if you're thinking behavioral, this is the type of voice therapy where we're teaching patients what to do in the middle of their voice production. So we're changing the technique of how they're creating sound, how they're using air and the shape of their throat and mouth to project that sound. And it's something that's happening in the moment. Um, so that's what behavioral is. And then physiological voice therapy um, is slightly different because you're completing vocal tasks um, that might tax the system and overload it muscular-wise, um, breath-wise, trying to get gains in what someone's able to do so an example of physiological voice therapy would be um like lsvt so lee silverman voice uh, therapy um another example would be uh joe stemple's vocal function exercises the he the glide up the glide down and then there's Five different notes that the person's singing, but these are programs that are implemented with the idea that the person will make gains with how many times they're doing them per day, okay? So back to behavioral, the most common is resonant voice therapy. Uh, this is where you're humming or you're creating a very buzzy sound at the front of the face, uh, v or z, and most commonly hums, Mm, where you're trying to get vibration sensation somewhere in the mouth, somewhere in the nose or cheekbones and feeling what happens when you do that. Uh, The humming, the the, those are all types of semi-occluded vocal tract exercises. And that seems like a really scary, long way to describe something. But uh, in layman's terms, it is where your vocal cords are creating sound, and then you're doing something to the tube that shapes that sound. Um, so the throat is part of that tube. The uh, the pharynx is part of that tube. The mouth, the oral cavity is part of that tube. Um, and if you're putting something in the way of that tube being open for an awe, like you're closing your lips, or you're bringing your tongue to your teeth, or you're completely shutting your mouth and having something come only out your nose or nostrils, um, that is type of semi-occlusion. You're putting something in the way of that tube. Um, so that humming is one thing. And the benefits of semi-occlusion are that it helps the vocal folds come together and not vibrate where they're colliding so hard. So this is helpful for our patients who may have um, lesions. Uh, where we're not wanting the vocal cords to slap together so many times a second or so hard. Um, it's helpful for patients who may have excess tension uh, and we're having them kind of re-coordinate those behaviors. Um, if they're straining because of that excess tension or if they have pain from that excess tension, uh, resonant voice therapy is a really great option. You may have heard of... Um, Straw that is another type of semi-included vocal tract exercise. Uh, lip trills, <clears throat> tongue trills. <clears throat> um, there's even a new one I was at the Fall Voice Conference last year in 2019. And the guy was presenting research, and it was humming, but he was closing the nostrils slightly with both fingers. So it was like a muffled hum. <clears throat> And that provided even more semi-occlusion with the fingers kind of almost sticking up the nose, like sticking up the nostrils. Um, So I'm looking forward to reading research on that as well. Um, And then another type of behavioral voice therapy is stretch and flow. And this is where a person may um, be exhibiting breath-holding patterns or, again, tension. Um, Or perhaps we want to, again, alleviate some kind of lesion uh by spacing the vocal folds out a little bit further uh, not having them come together fully when you're creating sound Uh, and stretch and flow is created by taking it's the only approach that takes completely vocal cord vibrations away but it keeps the articulation there so what i mean by that is you may start with just like blowing on an oo and then you advance to actual articulation tasks Um, some are rote like counting Um, and then you're able to, uh, advance up those counting hierarchies. You can kind of mix and match days of the week, months of the year, just easy on the brain, but all where your throat's really open and there's no vocal cord vibration. Then you bring the vocal cord vibration back in, but you have it very, very minimally. So something like, and then you can count like that, two, three. Um, A little bit different from the resonant voice where one, two, three, you're trying to aim for vibration at the front. The stretch and flow is more of how much air um, is coming out, how open and relaxed is your throat. Um, But again, all of those are techniques that we can try to help shape what a person is doing and then have them continue on into their conversational speech, which is the ultimate goal, right? Right. The goal shouldn't be they can do straw phonation with 100% accuracy. Uh, it should really be they can use a variety of these tools, of these behavioral voice therapy tools, uh, to get the desired outcome, whether that's less pain when they talk, um, they sound better to themselves, uh, they have better acoustic measures that we can test, that kind of thing. Um, but then the physiological, like I was saying earlier, the uh, vocal function exercises. Uh, those are, were created by Joe Temple, and there's a really good MedBridge course that he did, uh, where he describes exactly what they are, exactly how to do them. Um, I think there's no better way to describe all those because he's actually teaching a patient, uh, in those videos. So it's a perfect way to learn those. Um, like I was saying earlier, uh, LSVT is another type of physiological voice therapy. Um, a newer one is, uh, Forte. So this is A.D. Uh, Hatner and Aaron Ziegler, and they are creating, again, a protocol. The patient does daily, uh, and then you're taking these measures to kind of see how well they're doing, and then you advance them as we, they respond to this type of therapy, and you change it based on the patient's output. So there are different types of voice therapy It's not a crazy amount of different types, but there definitely are considerations for your patient based on what their needs are. If you had somebody with bowed vocal cords where they are atrophying and not touching all the way, you might not want to put them on stretch and flow and make them breathier, right? Um, We would potentially want to put them on uh, the physiological type where they're really taxing their system um, trying to bring the vocal cords a little closer together, um, and then if they were rough, we might throw in some resonant voice to help them sound less rough. Uh, that kind of thing. So,
0: yeah, that's super helpful. I love that overview, and I th- like this definitely is more of a crash course and not a comprehensive of how to do everything. But I'm definitely interested in like learning more. Like, how do we decide all of those? But I think that is a great starting point, and um, it gives us just some like enough of a foundational knowledge to like, if we have a student on our caseload who's receiving voice, then we at least have like a basic overview of kind of what might be happening depending on the approach. Or if we are in a position where we're deciding, we at least have kind of a starting point to figure out which approaches to look into. Um, So that's super helpful. Um, And then I'm curious too, because I've heard a lot about straw phonation. So where does that come in and when would you use that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, So straw phonation falls under behavioral voice therapy. Um, It is a type of semi-occluded vocal tract exercise. And it was researched very heavily by a man named Ingo Tietze, And he... Uh, found out with many studies that what was happening was that uh, when you're creating sound and air into a straw, right? So you're putting your lips completely around the straw and you're blowing air and sound through it. That that creates something called inertive reactants. And again, fancy word, um, but you can just call it back pressure. That back pressure travels from where the straw limits where the air and sound's coming out at your lips, and it forces it back down towards the vocal cord level, uh, the glottic level. And it encourages the vocal folds to not vibrate so hard. They don't slam so hard together. Um, And this is a really great tool, I think, for all ages. And I'll tell you why. You can use... Uh, Um, we've been calling it like blowfish, but where your lips are slightly parted, your cheeks are kind of puffed up, where you're kind of making the straw shape with your lips. I find that it's not appropriate for every patient. I also find that the straw, uh, gives the person something to hold. And when they see it, it becomes a visual cue. So they're able to be reminded, oh, yeah, I need to do my voice work today. Or uh, it's almost fun, right? They can grab the straw and say, I'm doing something really great for my voice because I have this tool and I'm able to do it versus uh, just maybe relying on their mouth or their lips. Uh, It it takes it out of their body because a lot of times if the tension is present, it's hard for us to get out of that mentally um, if we can have an external thing uh, potentially we can help alleviate that. Um, So you would use straw phonation um, if you had a patient who has excess tension um, or they may have dysphonia, which is just the fancy word for rough voice, but you would want to test and probe just like we do for speech therapy anyway, uh, to see if they're appropriate to see if the straw actually does something that's good um, for them. So In my evaluation sessions, I will hand the patient a straw after evaluating to see if they're a good candidate for it, Um, just because it's usually very easy to explain. Um, And again, with that thing in their hand, they're reminded visually, oh yeah, I have to do something. So I'll have them wrap their lips around the straw and make noise. I'll have them pick a pitch and kind of travel up and down in pitch to see where they feel the most vibration at their lips also. Um, And then I'll ask them, you know, do you feel that there is, if there's strain, like, do you feel if they're, if you're pushing at the throat level? Um, A lot of times you might hear that push or that strain. They might sound something like, right? Because their pattern of how they're creating sound is so tight. It's so um, uncoordinated and that's, all that their body is remembering how to do when you ask them to vibrate their vocal cords. Um, we see this a lot with people who have had um, like an illness like laryngitis uh, or they have had some kind of cold or upper respiratory infection where they, they cough a lot um, or they're straining to make sound because their vocal cords are so swollen. Uh, and this a lot of times will help break that habit for them. Um, so straw phonation is easy to do. You can have them do one to two minutes. You can even put, um, of just sounds, right? Single notes. You can have them put it in water and blow bubbles into the water while they're making the sound. Sometimes that adds a little resistance and it has them use breath in a different way. So I think that that's helpful as well. Um, but straw is not for everybody. Um, it could cause more tension than you think it should. Um, so listen to your gut, right? Follow your instincts with it because while it's good in theory, a lot of times I will try it with a patient because I'm thinking this is going to be perfect for them in the clinic. And then they try it and I completely throw it out the window and they're walking out the door because I've given them something else by this time. And they, uh, they will say, what about that straw thing? And I'm like, forget we even did that. Like just, I I tossed it. Um, We don't need that. Uh, So yeah, straw is a good thing to know about. It's good to have in your toolbox, um, but it's not the end all be all.
0: Okay, perfect. Um, So let's do a quick recap. So we talked about three different behavioral approaches. So there's resonant voice therapy, stretch and flow in straphonation. phonation. Um, and then for straphonation, phonation, uh, you said that it's ideal for patients who have, or it can be a good approach for patients with excess tension or dysphonia, but we want to abandon that if we find that using the straw actually causes more tension. Um, and so who would you say, like, who would we use resonant voice therapy with? Like, what would we see or what would an ideal patient be for that? Yeah.
1: Great question. Um, so, uh, Very similar. So somebody who uh, may like routine and things where they can try uh, a type of voice therapy in multiple occasions. So the resonant voice therapy can be used in a hierarchy fashion where you're doing uh, Kitty Verley Abbott calls it the basic training gesture. Mm hmm. Like you're answering a yes question. Mm hmm. Um, and single words mention or moon, um, there's a chant version as well, uh, where they're sustaining, uh, sound. My mom mails me money. Um, but this would be good for patients who might have just, I mean, straw too, might have just come off of vocal surgery. Um, they need, um. Uh, something that's not very uh, taxing on the vocal folds. They need gentle phonation or gentle sound production to start off with. Um, might be good for patients, again, who have pain when talking. Um, if they come to you and they sound like this and you need to rebalance how they're using breath and vocal cord vibration and resonance, you can teach them hmm, how to make the sound and then create that. Take them way over their comfort zone and naturalness of speech, because I sound really strange doing this right now. Um, Teach them how to do this and then teach them how to draw back from that where it actually sounds more normal, like natural conversation. But if they find themselves going back to that pattern, they can breathe in and then check back in with that resonant voice. So it's more of something you're going to have a little bit uh, more cognitive load to do that versus stop, do the straw for about a minute and then come back in. Um, so it's something that can be put within the context of a person's speech, um, in a little bit of a different way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great approach. I I think it is just like star phonation. I think patient dependent and sometimes we'll do really great with a patient with star phonation during a session. They do it for one week. It's really great. They come back the second week and things have gone really downhill. We'll throw a resonant voice in there and then that helps things and then they can rely on both straw phonation and resonant voice, um, to help them reach their target outcome.
0: Awesome. And then what about stretch and flow? Is that also similar or? So,
1: so for stretch and flow, you would want to use that on a patient who, uh, has a really difficult, a lot of times patients will have difficult time humming where it's relaxed. And you would think that's not that hard, right? I can hum, but sometimes their patterns or how they sound doesn't necessarily uh, create smooth quality. um, And they can't break the pattern of the tightness or the dysphonia with the humming alone, because it's too similar to their everyday speech. So for those patients, um, there was actually a study, um, it was a non-inferiority study, meaning one wasn't worse than the other um, and it looked at comparing resonant voice therapy to stretch and flow, finding that both, um, were able to make a, a an impact positively for patients. So, um, this would be if your patient can't do resonant voice therapy really well, or if you think they're holding their breath, um, and you want to go ahead and start there, you can. Um, but because it takes away vocal cord vibration and it focuses on airflow and and, and output of air. I think it's a really good one if, if you know your patient's personality or their presentation uh, is one where their shoulders are really tight, they're holding their breath, they're talking really fast like this, absolutely is like that. And you really need to break down the systems so that you can build them back up again. So you can say, Hey, patient, let's talk about breath. I want to teach you how to really focus and slow down on your articulation, how you're forming words, breath happens the whole time. Um, You're able to teach them utterances on one breath and how that feels. Then you throw the voice back in Um, because sometimes it's too much to think about for a patient because they've been doing, uh, they've been vocalizing one way for so long.
0: Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that overview. Um, And then what about the, Physiological ones. So we talked about LSVT, then Joe Stemple's vocal exercises and forte. Um, So, who would you use LSVT with?
1: Yeah, great question. So, LSVT was formulated with a specific group of patients in mind, and that's patients with Parkinson's um, disease. And those patients uh, with Parkinson's lose volume, they lose intelligibility, and a lot of times they get. Uh, because of their age, uh, bowed vocal cords. So we're kind of combating three things all at once. And the LSVT is created is Lorraine Ramig um, and Cynthia Fox, and they um, created this where the person is holding out these long O's, um, and their tagline is "Think loud and speak out." Is a is Samantha Ellendary. She's doing something really similar um, with that as well. These long, loud productions of sound so many times a day, so many times a week. Um, And they're aiming for overall system improvement and overall system change uh, by just physically completing those exercises. So getting gains, kind of like you would at the gym. Okay. Mm
0: -hmm. Perfect.
1: Forte is really similar. Um, It takes into consideration some vibrant talking, some exuberant voice exercises. Um, It looks a little different from LSVT and Speak Out as well. Um, However, it's different in that it's less sessions. The patient does a lot of work from home. Um, LSVT has a component where you a lot of times will get dementia progressing slowly or rapidly with the Parkinson's. The LSVT requires the patient to complete the session with the therapist four times a week for four weeks. Um, Forte is a little bit different because you can have these check-in sessions and we expect the patient to have a pretty high ability to be self-motivated, um, cognitively aware enough to do what we ask them to do. Cause they're kind of measuring their sound as they do it. Um, so I think Forte is a great option. The patient's able to have more flexibility and not come in as frequently um, or not be seen as frequently uh, and getting great gains that last. Um, yeah, I think that covered it. And what I didn't mention, um, and I should have, I didn't, um, for behavioral voice therapy, there is a newer one for behavioral as well called conversation training therapy. Um, and that's uh, Jackie Garner Schmidt and Amanda Gillespie. Um, it's the first therapy, this also has a really great MedBridge course on it. Um, it's great because for speech therapy, for language therapy, for things that you all are doing every day, most of the time you're doing a hierarchy approach, right? You're getting the child uh, to a certain level, um, or maybe even the adult, right? You're, you're doing something and then they meet that criteria and then you're moving to a, a higher level. For conversation training therapy, you start with a certain type of cue, and then you're able to add these other tenets of the therapy whenever and wherever you want. So I think it requires a good understanding of how voice therapy flows, um, but I think both women do a great job explaining the how of it during that MedBridge course, um, where you're able to say, that makes complete sense. I can always start there and then add these other components in. And I probably was doing that already with my other patients and I just didn't realize it. Um, So what they're finding with that is while traditional voice therapy may have required multiple sessions weekly or months, um, the CTT is actually creating an ability for patients to not be seen very frequently. Um, They're learning it very like from the first session learning how to generalize. Uh, and then the results are lasting as well for quite a long time after. So it's kind of groundbreaking because why wouldn't you want your patient to advance as fast as possible, right? Of course you would want that. Um, but I think the right type of patient for this training as well uh, needs to be taken into consideration. So, and, and cognitive level, the ability to multitask is is one of those components. So
0: that's super helpful. Again, thank you. Um, And then, so we've got a quick overview of um, the different types of therapy that we might use. Um, And then what do you do if you're using one or multiple approaches and the child just isn't responding? Like, what would you recommend then? That's a
1: really, really great question.
0: The, The type of therapy, you always
1: want to start with what the child is stimulable for. So you may go through multiple, like you may have them lip trail, you may have them hum, you may have them yawn and sigh on that yawn. You may have them blow bubbles in the cup with the straw. Um, You may have them get louder, right? Um, And whatever makes the best sound you should go with. But that may change the next time you see the child because maybe that isn't something they're responding to. And so you can always switch mid-session, you can switch the next day, next time you see that child if they're not responding, um, and kind of jump around those techniques all while trying to attain where the child is going um, goal-wise, right? And you find this by discussing not only with the child, but the teacher and the family to determine why the child is you know in voice therapy in the first place what are you trying to improve what is out of the range of normal um but maybe the child isn't responding to therapy at all right you're doing these uh indirect voice therapy things and indirect is the component of voice therapy where we talk about hygiene um, or vocal wellness we talk about preventing phonotrauma um so avoiding the throat clears avoiding the yelling that kind of thing um drinking the water right how are you, how well are you hydrated these are all important things um are you resting your voice after right do you have a, a routine for your voice is there a warm up that you do those indirect things um limiting the time you're you're on the playground because maybe you're helping to limit the yelling if the child just can't stop yelling on the playground um or changing what recess looks like for that child for a little while, um, but if if they're not responding at all, meaning they haven't been able to carry over, right? Maybe that's what that means to me. They're they're not responding, um, meaning there may not be any carryover. I would want to know and talk with the family. I might make a couple phone calls. Uh, how is Johnny uh, doing his practice at home with you? How does that? What does that look like? Do you? Do the cards that we send home? Do you do the worksheets, right? Oh, that's boring? Okay. Um, What do you do at dinner? What does talking look like? Uh, Can you incorporate some of these techniques when you guys are talking at a meal? What does bath time routine look like? Um, Or if the child's older, you know, what are you doing when you drive uh, Johnny to soccer practice? Um, Is there a conversation going on in the car? Um, I would really probe how the family is involved. Also, there is a really great article. Um, let me see here. I think it's, it's Barbara Weinrich. It's um, Lisa Kelchner. Yeah. It's another person. Susan Baker Brown. I was like, if I can't remember it, I'm going to be, I thought of it. Um, But their article looking at how voice therapy really impacts um, or how it's impacted by family involvement, right? The therapy techniques may do very little to, uh, to impact what we look at as the outcome. Uh, but a huge component of that is how the family views voice therapy, how the family, what, what importance the family gives to doing the practice, carrying it over. So I think if the response isn't there, I want to know what's happening at home. And then the other phone call would be to the teacher or um, or maybe trying to hop in and, and chat with him or her at uh, after class one time to kind of see what's going on in the classroom, how the teacher is able to help facilitate the new voicing, the phonotrauma prevention, uh, the hydration, that kind of thing. Um, and see if there's something you can do to help troubleshoot. That's the first thing I would do. And then if you do that for a while and there's still no response to the therapy, I would really suggest potentially getting a reevaluation by the doctor that might include uh, getting visualized again. So another, another video stroboscopy or um, at the very least nasal endoscopy where they're going through the nose. Maybe they don't have the light to look at it in slow motion, but maybe. Um, they can look with a no scope um, to see if it's really what we thought it was to begin with, right? Um, sometimes you get the kid scoped and you think, oh, it's, it looks like vocal nodules. These will go away if we do therapy and vocal rest. Um, and then if nothing's improving, you may go back in and then discover, maybe with a more specific test, like a video of stroboscopy you say, Oh, this wasn't nodules at all. This looks like a cyst on one side and it's swollen on the other side because the cyst has been hitting that other vocal cord every time they talk and it's going to require surgical removal. So in that case, it's great because there's a reason the child wasn't responding to therapy, right? The child was doing everything. The family was doing everything. Teacher, they're all superstars, but it was something that needed to be fixed surgically. Um, And so had you not visualized, had you gone um, and continue to do what you do, oh, Johnny will get better, your year two goes by, nothing changes. You have frustrated parents, frustrated teacher. Johnny thinks he is the worst child ever because he can't fix his voice Um, when the easy answer was, let's get another visualization here and uh, really see what's the problem.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I remember from my voice classes that it was really important to have that exam before starting therapy. Um, So is that the truth? And like, why would that be the case?
1: Yeah, so I think most definitely, it's the truth that uh, we would we would need to visualize what's going on, just like Edie Habner was talking about this at uh, Sin City Laryngology in February, that you know, making a case for uh, visualization before treatment, just like a doctor would not do any kind of recommendations before an x ray, right? For like a broken arm or a broken leg, um, you wouldn't want to have any kind of surgery. On something, unless you had done a scan, like a CT scan or an MRI, right? We we do these scans um, so we can have a better idea of what we're looking at, um, and I think that's absolutely the same uh, for voice therapy, because if you're not looking and you're creating a treatment plan, um, you are saying, "Here's what I believe the problem to be, based on what you hear." um, what you see the patient doing from the outside, um, and you're missing that inside component, you may be setting yourself up for harm in the way that what you do is futile. Like everything you're doing is not going to fix the problem because the problem really needed to be fixed with surgery. So, and that doesn't mean that the surgery, like you wouldn't do voice therapy, if the person had to have surgery, right? It's always a, a better outcome when there's a combination there. But the expectation I think is the most important part. You have to be real and truthful with your patients about what they can expect. And if they just expect voice therapy to fix the problem and it's not fixing the problem, there becomes a trust issue with you as the provider right you're not you're no longer trustworthy because what you said was going to help is not helping and what are they supposed to do now and i think having that video stroboscopy completed before implementing any kind of treatment plan uh helps you help them it helps everybody um and you get a lot of pushback because if you see patients in the school and you are saying, hey, this kiddo needs an exam, the school doesn't necessarily want to pay for that, right? Um, But I think it's really important. And a lot of times the parents may be scared, right? They may not want to have their child get examined. Um, So if they're very adamant that they don't want that exam, right? Like, you can't force them to get that exam. But I think you have to have these conversations about not or limited knowledge on your part being, uh, re- resulting in limited improvement, potentially. You may not be able to have the whole picture. Um, and so you may not be able to give them the outcome that they desire.
0: Okay, perfect. Thank you for that overview. Um, I think that's a good uh, reminder and refresh too. Um, so what other recommendations do you have for school-based SLPs? Um, like maybe we can start with students who are seeing a voice therapist and who have gotten like who have gotten all of the visualizations like videos of Strabosky, like there's the voice ex- expert working with them. Like what do you recommend for SLPs in that situation?
1: Um, well, a good behavioral voice exam, right? So if you've had the, if you've had the doctor, um, do the exam or an SLP in your area who does video stroboscopy, um, you have that done and that comes back to you. You still need to know what the, what the child does well, like where you're going to head with therapy. So a good ability, um, for behavioral probing. So I would start there. I would gather acoustics, acoustic measures if I could, um, uh, meaning fundamental frequency. So the average pitch that the patient talks at, um, you could run acoustic measures, something like the acoustic voice quality index. uh, That gives you a number that indicates uh, if dysphonia is present or not. So dysphonia, again, uh, messed up sound like hoarseness. Uh, The... Acoustic Voice Quality Index kind of uh, supersedes um, jitter and shimmer, right? Those are maybe words that you fi- look back in your brain and you think, oh, oh, yeah, that was something we learned in school. I can't remember what that means. Uh, but something has come out in recent years uh, called cepstral Peak Prominence, and it is a much more sensitive indicator. It It is. Contains the ability to measure connected speech, so the child talking in a sentence, as well as sustained vowel, ah, where you may have only used jitter and shimmer to measure ah, and maybe the child sounds really great doing ah, but then they start talking like this, right? Uh, so, how can you measure something that is really representative of what the child's output is? Uh so enter the acoustic voice quality index because that contains part of that capital peak prominence um, and some other measures as well. Um that you can gather some aerodynamic measurements as well. You can get vital capacity for the child um uh to find dot phonation quotient or estimated mean flow rate um to determine if the child's using air adequately. Um all of those I've put together a kind of guideline on how to obtain those measures um, with a really concise uh, measurement tool in Excel that I have in my online store uh, to kind of walk you through and guide you uh, with how to administer a behavioral, acoustic, aerodynamic evaluation Um, I added cards so that the child can hold the cards and then flip to the next one, uh, where they can, you can, you have the target, what they're about to do. They can read it out loud and then they have an idea of where they're headed. Um, it's tangible. They can flip through the cards so they're not distracted. Um, then you would start determining goals. You would decide what they sounded best at, what made them sound better. Um, and then you would discuss with the child, I think it's super important to see where he or she has uh, any kind of opinion on the situation, right? That's going to help with motivation. And um, I think that's really important as well as the family and the teacher, um, just discussing what kind of support system they have at home, uh, how they're going to practice, what that's going to look like. Uh, You can explain what it'll look like at school. uh, And then how your check-ins are going to be, like how the ARDS are going to look.
0: Uh, for the voice goals for that child. Awesome. And I love that you have that voice assessment guide, um, because I know that could, like, if it's something that we don't do a lot of, I know that can be kind of intimidating to <laughs> dig up all yeah, of the notes, I, but that's an amazing resource. Um, so It was
1: super intimidating to make, uh, Marsha, because... <laughs> I've, I've been worried to make it for such a long time because I was thinking, how am I ever going to throw all the knowledge I have about what you do in an evaluation into something that can be replicated, right? That can be recreated and then utilized. But the more I talked to people who really were just using S to Z ratio and calling it a voice evaluation, I was like, I can make something that can give them so much more information and the ability to help, Mark progress in such a better way. Um, so I made it, um, and I had it tested. Um, I had lots of people try it um, and get feed, give give me feedback on it. And I changed a lot of things about it as it was being made. Um, but I had been making these other resources uh, for my store for like resonant voice therapy games, stretch and flow games, straw foundation games, uh, breathing training, that kind of thing um, for pediatric patients because why should speech and language kids have all the fun (laughs) you know, you're you're looking for things for mixed groups and it's like, and I have nothing for this child with a voice disorder. That's on my caseload. So I said, there's nothing, so I'm going to make it. Um, But then I kept getting these questions about, well, how do I know when to use resonant voice? How do I know when to implement strapponation? So part of the reason that guide was made as well is because it has suggestions um, and probing in it, kind of like the, um, no prep uh, voice workbook that's in the store as well. The the one that has um, it's like uh, I want to say it's like 120 or 128 pages I think. Um, maybe it's more. Uh, but that kind of goes through again probing what the child sounds like and then activities where you can bounce back and forth if they're doing great with straw phonation one day and you need stretch and flow the next day. Um, and then you have activities in that too to work with your mixed groups. So um, I, out of that came, uh, out of making these came the need for guidance on how to implement them as well. So the gu- that's, that's why the guide, uh, I think is so important and great to use because it, it includes a video demonstration of how to implement all the measures, the testing, um, and shows you kind of exactly what to do. So you don't have to just do S to Z ratio. You have a lot more at your disposal.
0: That is so cool. Um, And then I will put the link to the voice assessment and then the uh, voice therapy workbook um, in the show notes. So those will be at slpnow.com slash 51. Um, And there's like even more resources that you've made that are amazing. So um, I'll just put the link to your store there too. Um, And then what recommendations would you have for um, a student who like we get a referral from the teacher, they say like we find that they have like their voice, they're having some kind of dysphonia or whatever it may be. Um, I assume that we still want to have that good behavioral voice exam. Um, And then we talked about trying to get a physician to look at the vocal folds before starting anything, but do you have any other suggestions on like how to navigate that?
1: Yeah. So that brings up a good point. Um, I have a lot, um, in the past in our clinic, uh, been able to do video stroboscopy, um, for SLPs who, uh, send their children and then the child gets treated in the school. Um, so we can do the exam at our clinic and then, Get, collaborate with that SLP to say, here's what the child was really good at. And here's kind of your starting points. And then collab- you, you, know, you can collaborate with um, the SLP who may do voice all the time in your area um, so that you know what to do and where to go with that child. So I think that we're better together um, regarding our experiences, because um, if you don't know much about voice and you're trying to treat that child and you're thinking, well, I know enough where I can probably not harm the child, but I think it's really important to get the opinion of the specialist SLP, um, because you can still make a difference, um, in the school. Maybe you should need a little guidance, you need a little, a little collaboration with that person. Um, so, uh, I would suggest, uh, in your area, getting an exam or at least giving a call to that SLP to say, Hey, what, uh, what would you do with this child? Um, I have this child in my caseload. Uh, Here's what I'm thinking. What are your thoughts on that? Um, You know, kind of a a mentor situation where you're going to benefit as the school SLP because you'll know what to do with the next child with a voice disorder. Um, But then that child's going to benefit too because uh, you're going to be a lot more equipped with better knowledge um, after that consult. Uh, because the thing you you find, I find, is that if you didn't have a placement opportunity where you could go and watch voice therapy be done, um, it's kind of scary or strange or odd. Um, Leah Haleu actually talked at uh, Sin City Laryngology in February also um, kind of about the metatherapy. So um, what she describes is kind of, our dialogue, like how the things that we're saying, how we're saying it, the schemas that we build in our mind, uh, the routines, right. Um, and it's how we as clinicians, uh, do these things kind of methodically, uh, to get the result we want in a session, right. Um, it's a, it's our attempt at programming, uh, a framework, uh, that we use in each session. It may not look the same in every session, but if you're watching it go down, you know what that, that, speech pathologist is doing so um this type of thing and and trying to let somebody know how that's happening maybe by having that slp come and observe um maybe the school says you can go observe at this voice clinic so you can learn how to treat our students better um i think that that's helpful as well because then they get to see the meta therapy and they're not so bogged down with okay, great. They did their hum in a hum level. Now we can do an M word level, right? Um, they have the idea of, you don't have to have 50 M words sound really resonant to move on. Um, the repetitions are important. Yes. But you need to be able to have that skill of stepping back and, uh, looking at the, the, the framework that you're using to conduct a session. Um, because you all have frameworks that you use all the time with your speech and language, uh, ARTIC um, children, uh, it, it looks the same, um, with voice, but, uh, there's a little bit, uh, different considerations for that. So I think, uh, if you're an SLP in a school and you have a student that needs an exam, maybe you can go and watch that exam, right? Um, that's how you're going to learn, uh, or potentially you can go and observe uh, the SLP do the scope or the, um, the SLP do the eval who maybe does voice more frequently. Or you can at least give a consult phone call to somebody who um, can mentor you and support you as you're supporting that student
0: yeah that's perfect. I love those ideas and just getting really strategic with the resources that we have available. and, um, yeah, definitely, like that mentorship collaboration approach seems like it would benefit everyone involved.
1: Yeah, most definitely. Like I really do feel like like we're better if we can collaborate, but it doesn't it's not always intuitive, right? Because you. <laughs> have so many students on your caseload you're crammed with stuff to do until the day is over you probably take work home with you and then it's time to hang out with your family because they need you to um but i think it's important to to collaborate nonetheless um to try to do better for your patients because that's why we do this in the first place we don't um we don't go into speech language pathology um without big hearts uh and loving what we do and we do that because we love our patients and we want them to succeed.
0: Yes, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, and so I I mean, I wish I feel like we could talk about all of this stuff for hours and hours, but we're almost at the end of our time. Um, so if SLPs want to find out more about you, where can they um, connect with you or like, I'll definitely be linking to your Teachers Pay Teachers store and your website, um, but like, where do you hang out and where can SLPs find out more?
1: Yeah, so I, I do hang out on Instagram pretty frequently. Um, my handle is at Christy underscore voice, and that's K-R-I-S-T-I-E underscore voice.
0: Well, thank you so much, Christy. This was an absolute treat. I so appreciate your time and... Yeah. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Thanks so much for having me, Marisha. I really appreciated it. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speech therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.